Hello, this week's Parsha is Parshat Mishpatim, and we are the Toronto Torah Podcast, brought to you by Beit Midrash Zichron Dov. Each week, we will offer a different view on the weekly Torah portion, one conversation a week, every week. And today, Rabbi Mordechai Turchiner and Rabbi Chaim Metzger will discuss Parshat Mishpatim in the light of slavery. Good morning, Rabbi Mordechai Turchiner. Good morning, Rabbi Chaim Metzger. Before we get into today's topic of slavery, let's first contextualize it within this week's Parsha. Mishpatim, as the name implied, is all about laws. Continuing after last week when we received the Ten Commandments at Harsinai, now we finally have the first laws and regulations presented to us by Moshe Rabbeinu as God commands him. First, we begin by looking at the laws of a Ebed Ivri, of a Jewish slave, followed by that of an Ama Avriah, a, a Jewish maidservant, before going on to quite a few other topics. We touch on laws related to personal injury, to loan, to usury, to property damage. We discuss whether or not you can do certain activities that may serve as religiously problematic, such as, as sorcery or bestiality or offering sacrifices to various idols. And we also discuss how we can't be mean to the Geri Atom Valmanah, the foreigner, the widow, or the orphan. And before the, the day is out, we also discuss the Shlosher Galim, the three festivals of, for, by which we are commanded to visit the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, namely that of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. In doing so, we lay the groundwork for what will eventually be and what we know as the Torah. Thank you very much for that summary of the Parsha of Chaim. Well done on a Parsha that is very hard to summarize. I want to roll it back to the beginning. Slavery. The Israeli writer Amos Oz called himself a Yoresh, an heir to the estate of Torah. But he explained what that means. He said, I am free to decide what of this giant estate will stand in my salon and what I will conceal in the cellar. Many of us do this, consciously or unconsciously, storing away in the cellar those aspects of Judaism that disturb us. One of those topics is slavery. As human beings and as Jews, we accept it as a given, right? Slavery is awful. Um, if anyone doesn't think that, then you can just check out of the podcast <laughs> at this point. I mean, look at the history. The abuse of slaves who were kidnapped from Africa, who suffered rape and other violence and humiliation for centuries, and then going back earlier, the way we ourselves were captured or kidnapped and enslaved by numerous nations, and then go back further to our experience in Egypt. Look at the morality the Torah teaches us. It teaches us to give staka to people in need, providing them with money, providing them with produce. It teaches us not to harm the stranger, not to harm those who are socially vulnerable. In our parsha, v'ger lo sonet, do not oppress the foreigner. And this is towards Jews and it's towards non-Jews. And then you hit the opening chapter of our portion and it's wall-to-wall slavery. Right? Some of the laws do seem to be positive in their treatment of slaves, but why do you have a slave in the first place? Right? We begin with the law of releasing a Jewish slave, an Eved Ivri, after six years. We continue with the law of a Jewish female minor who is sold as a slave, being freed when she reaches maturity. We continue with punishment for a master who kills a slave. Bravo for punishing him, but why do you have a slave in the first place? 
You know, then you have the law of a non-Jewish slave, where if he is maimed, he's freed immediately. But again, why are you holding slaves? Punishment for somebody whose animal attacks a slave. And the slaveholder is called an adon, repeatedly, a master. How much more horrifying do we need this to be? And it's not just in our Torah portion. It will come up again in the Torah. The truth of the matter is that historically, there were Jews who participated in the African slave trade. In my, um, in my first synagogue, where I was in Rhode Island, I had a fellow in my shul, uh, Jonathan Schorsch, uh, who did his PhD on the history of the relationship between blacks and Jews over those centuries. It's actually available in book form, uh, Jews and Blacks in the Early Modern World. And he talked about the involvement of Jews. Uh, we weren't overwhelmingly involved, but we were. There were Jews who were there. Um, and our question here is not only about the failings of human beings who did this, but about the Torah itself, which seems to be prescribing it. How can we reconcile that with our history, with our morality, with all the mitzvot that were given about being kind to others, taking care of others? Is this an Amos O's moment? Is this something that we just stash in the cellar? Before I answer the question of why, I'd like to tell a story. A number of years ago, when I was in Yeshiva University, I was lucky to be able to be in Rabbi Jeremy Weider's shir, as his lectures at Yeshiva University, as he taught us various parts of the Gemara. Every week, he would also tell us a little bit about that week's Parsha. And when it came to Parshat Mishpatim, he asked, what is unique about the Jewish laws? What makes them so special? And he asked, on the beginning of our Parsha, what is unique about the laws as relate to the slaves we see here? And he asked, what is the punishment for somebody who murders a slave? And we're all thinking, well, did the person do it on purpose? How hard did he hit him? And Rabbi Weider simply responds that you clearly all haven't properly read, read the verse. Because if you'd read the verse, you'd realize that if a man strikes down a servant or a maidservant with his, with his rod, and that person passes away, he will surely be avenged. There is no question, no debate as is the person responsible because the person is a slave? You are responsible for your actions, no matter who you do that action against. Many people like to quote that it's important to contextualize what is the difference between our laws and the laws was considered to be standard at the time when the Torah was given. The most well-known law code of the time is that of the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was, was the, the king of the, of the first dynasty of Babylon, and he put up throughout his kingdom these steels, he put up these huge monuments and pillars describing what the laws are in the land. The laws themselves are quite fascinating, with many different parallels to the Torah. But one thing that stands out is that you'll note that whenever it mentions a law, it doesn't simply state it once. It states it three times, each time with a slightly different variation. And each of these variations of the law aren't because it's a new case each time. The case is, in fact, almost identical. What changes is the caste of the individuals involved. If a person is a rich landowner, they get preferential treatment. If the landowner injures somebody who happens to be poor or somebody who is a slave, he can get out of it quite easily. Sometimes it's just a very small fine, maybe a little slap on the wrist, and then he's free to go. On the other hand, if somebody who happened to have been a slave were to in any way injure, even if not cause any significant harm to somebody in a higher caste, they would be put to death. What marks the laws of the Torah as different from the laws of the time is that there is something known as absolute truth and absolute justice. 
There isn't this thing of, oh, if you can wiggle your way out because of where you stand, because of your money, then that's fine. The Torah states that what you do, you're responsible for, no matter what it happens to be. And we contextualize that with the laws of the slave. We realize that because of the differences between the way the laws, as the Torah presents them, versus the way that it is presented by Hammurabi, we see just how progressive and just how far God is commanding us to go and how God really wants us to react when we happen to be interacting with those who happen to be slaves. What you're saying is true, um, but I would actually go further. Um, I, I think slavery as constituted in the Torah is founded on certain values which modern society retains. Um, even though, let's be clear, I would never dream of restarting it. I am not advocating anyone restarting it. Uh, let's start with the Eved Ivri, the Jewish slave. Um, to me, this is about the value of welfare. It is essentially a welfare economy which looks to the individual to provide support for those in need. Instead of saying the state has to do it, the individual has to do it. In general, employment in Judaism is viewed as a form of welfare support extended by the employer to the indigent employee. When you look in the Torah, starting all the way back in Bereshis, the ideal is to own your own land and to farm and to raise animals, right? Each person with his vineyard, each person with his fig tree, Working for somebody else is generally a concession to economic need. So the employee is looked at as needy, sacrificing time and health for money. And that continues from the, from the Chumash all the way into the Gemara, where we talk about needy people endangering themselves at work. And uh, Rav Hamnuna, actually, in the Zohar, turns to an employee who is leaving his employee and says, take your life back, which you gave me to guard. The employer is viewed as generous in hiring the worker instead of doing the work personally. The, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says, that needy people should be members of your household. And the Rambam says what that means is when you have a job to do in your house, hire a needy person. It's a form of tzedakah. You're helping the person out by giving them work. Our laws of employment are shaped by this perception of the employer as generously helping the employee. So the Torah says you have to pay people on time because this person really needs that money and he's going to cry out to God in the event that you don't pay him on time. Halacha allows an employee to leave at will, assuming it won't harm the work that's already been done. Employers are not allowed to break an agreement. We don't want people, the employees, to lose their time, their freedom, and their health. That's the basic you know, view of employment. But not everybody's able to get a job, whether in terms of their skills or the employment market or their connections. So they go even further, selling their freedom to leave the, their freedom to leave the job. There are two ways somebody can become a Jewish slave, either by stealing and not being able to repay, or if they sell themselves because of poverty. There is no debtor's prison, there is no, you know, none of that, but if the person can't repay their, their debt, they may choose to sell themselves as a, uh, as a slave. 
In that context, they are protected from abuse. The Torah in Parshas Bahar and in Parshas Re'eh details all sorts of protections. They're not sold on the slave market. They can't be given demoralizing work. They can't be given demeaning work. Um, they're given the best resources in the house. They get the nicest bed. They get the best food. They get the best wine. Um, all of this is for them, and it's all detailed in the Chumash as well as in the Talmud in particular, if you look at Kiddushin uh, 22a. Um, there are gifts given to them when they leave their, their servitude. The, um, and we see that at the start of our Parsha, right? Let's go back to the beginning of our Parsha, where we're told there's a time limit, maximum of six years, no more than that. And it envisions such a benign form of slavery that the slave might insist on staying, right? The slave might say, I really like this. In which case, there's still a limit. He can't stay indefinitely. The Yovel year, the Jubilee year, is a deadline by which the slave must go free. As we noted, it also describes a father selling his minor child into slavery. Now remember, the Torah requires parents to support their children. We have laws about compelling parents to do so, shaming them if they don't do so. But this case in the Torah is a father who can't do that. And so the father sends them to work for somebody else and to receive the benefit from them instead. And so our parsha says, if it's a girl, she has to be let to go free at maturity. We can't leave her in that state. If it's a boy, we follow the same rules as the adult male, which is that he goes free after having been an Eved for for six years. There is no such thing as an adult female slave uh, as uh, as far as these laws are concerned. So to sum up, from the Torah's perspective, The goal of Eved Ivri is for a private citizen to help somebody who is in dire need, providing room and board while providing them with work and protecting them from abuse, demanding in exchange that they surrender their freedom to leave for up to six years. I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want to surrender my freedom even for a limited time. What if my alternative was starvation? for that excellent summary of a very complicated topic of slavery. But I would like to dial back in to the question of when you can sell yourself into slavery and is that even a remotely good thing to do? So first, I want to quote from the Gemara Megillah, which talks about what were to happen if a father was to have sold his daughter into slavery. So in the Gemara, the, the Gemara Megillah uh, 27a, we see the pain of Rishim and Gamliel, who says that somebody who were to have sold his daughter into slavery will never see any sign of blessing from the, from the money that comes out from that sale. What does that mean, that he will see, never see a blessing? What it means is that actually invoking this mechanism, the mechanism of selling your daughter as a maidservant, is not something that is viewed to be remotely positively. It is the absolute last choice, and even if you were to exercise that, to use it, it might not even end the way you'd want to. If you take a look at the Rambam in the beginning of the laws of slavery, Hilchot Avadim, he goes through in the first chapter describing just how poor the individual has to be before they are able to sell themselves. It's not simply somebody who's struggling to make ends meet. It's somebody who can't find food for themselves, has no other things that they own to their name that they could even sell. And if they had to have sold themselves off and there's any money left, they can't even use any of that money to buy anything else. It can only be used if they absolutely needed to pay off their debts and to pay off what they need to survive the very next day. And similarly, with the case of with the with a Amavriya, the Jewish maidservant as well, it's only done in the absolute last moment when your choice is starvation or doing this. Conversely, we seem, it seems that there's absolutely no possible way that this could ever be a good thing. 
Yet, if a, a male Jewish slave, after six years, decided that he wanted to stay as a slave, the Torah gives a way that he could do it. The way he could remain is such as if he were to go and have his ear pierced, then he could stay all the way. But what does it mean to have your ear pierced and when you're committing to this? Rashi, on the spot, explains that having your ear pierced is because there's something wrong with what you were listening to. All of the Jewish people heard by the revelation at Harsinai that we are to be God's people, that we have a mission in life. And in order to properly fulfill that mission, we each need to have our own free will, our own ability to choose and decide what is right and what is wrong. We have to choose who should we work for. And when we choose who to work for, we're not simply working for a human master because he treated us well, maybe provided us with a wife that was convenient. But if we want to truly be free and want to truly learn how to serve God, it has to be under our own terms. We have to know which direction we're going to go in. We can't simply follow what somebody else tells us to do each and every moment. We have to each learn how to operate as an individual, able to utilize our free will, and able to decide what is a good decision and what is a bad decision. I feel like this isn't um, our normal type of podcast in the sense that usually when I do a podcast, I disagree with what the other person is saying, and here we're just agreeing. But, you know, it's the nature of the topic. Number one, we are very uncomfortable with slavery. And number two, we do think that uh, there are points to be made about the Torah's version of slavery in contrast with the North American version of slavery. And that brings me to um, Eved Kna'ani, the term that's used in the Torah for a, a slave who is not Jewish. We said for Eved Ivri, for the Jewish slave, it's about helping the slave. Flip it for the Eved Kna'ani. It's more about helping the, uh, the Adon. It's about another economic issue, um, how society deals with labor shortages. There was a report this past Thursday about Canadian food processors lobbying the federal government to create a temporary foreign worker program to address labor shortages. The lobbyists were not looking to help workers. There are people who want to get into Canada in order to work in our food service system. Um, it's about looking to help an economy that needs people to do the jobs that no one else is willing to do. And that's what Evi is fundamentally about. The Sefer HaChinuch writes it, Mitzvah Shin Memzayin, that it's about getting people who will do jobs that are difficult, jobs that are undesirable, jobs that would take your time away from Torah and mitzvos. In Jewish law, normally, an employee is able to leave a job partway through, like I said before. So how do you retain employees doing the jobs that no one wants to do? And the answer is, you find people who agree to surrender their freedom to leave in exchange for support, and that's the Evid Kanani. One becomes an Evid Kanani in one of three ways. Um, military conquest, uh, selling himself as an Evid, or being sold by a non-Jewish Adon. But it's important to note, I use the word agree on purpose. Um, it's important to note that this service to a Jew cannot be coerced. The Gemara in Yevamos, Daf Memches, it's brought in the Rambam, it's brought in the Shulchan Aruch, all stress that the Eved Kenani agrees to start a conversion to Judaism before becoming a slave, and when the slave is freed, that conversion is completed. So in other words, slave comes to the Jew and says, you know, or, well, he's not a slave yet. He says, I want to sell myself in order to become an Eved. 
And the Jew says, okay, but you're going to have to accept that you are becoming Jewish. They say, no, thank you. The deal's off. The Jew is allowed to engage in conversation with him for a year to try to convince him. And if he fails over that time, over that, that year, that's it. It's over. The, um, you can't coerce. Even in the case of military conquest, you're not allowed to, to coerce. If it's coerced, it's invalid. That's the law in the books. So an Eved Kanani is somebody who agrees to do this, presumably for, for economic benefit. And because the Torah recognizes that this system benefits the Adon, it puts rules in place which prevent abuse, as seen in, in the beginning of our parsha, uh, The most basic form of protection from harm, you mentioned it before, somebody kills an Evid Kanani, the punishment is death. Um, we also learn in our parsha if the slave is wounded by the master, whether knocking out an eye or a tooth as specified in the biblical text, or any one of 24 body parts identified by the Rambam, um, the Evid goes free. Human dignity. The, we have a principle of kavod habrios, the dignity accorded to every human being, Jew and non-Jew, and that applies for the Eved as well. So it's not the North American version of things uh, at all. Now, again, I can explain the logic of society wanting labor, even if it's not something that I would want to restart, because, again, you're surrendering freedom. And for us in our society, that is anathema. So to sum up, it's an economic reality that people are needed to fill this niche. And there will be people who will sell their freedom for this purpose the, uh, and that's, that's there. Um, the Torah's laws warn us not to take advantage. Thank you very much, Rabbi Jorchiner, for expanding the concept of slavery not only to the Jewish slave, but to the non-Jewish slave as well. But I'd like to take it back to what it means to be an Eved in a very different sense. There's an apocryphal story where Rebbe tells his students that if you really want to have your prayers answered, when you say halal today, make sure that you say it with extra fervor when you say the, the words, Ana Hashem. And so, later that day, the students make sure when they're saying halal, they say it with as much fervor as they can muster. Yet, not all the prayers are answered. So they go back to the Rebbe and they ask him, but Rebbe, we did exactly as you'd said. And the Rebbe responds, which Pasuk did you sing it for? And they said, Ana Hashem Hoshiana, Ana Hashem Hatzlichana. God, please save us. God, please deliver us. The Rebbe says, that wasn't the right Pasuk. The Pasuk you were supposed to have been singing with all your might was, Ana Hashem ki ani avdecha, ani avdecha ben amatecha, pi tachta l'moserai. Please God, I am your servant. The son of your maidservant, you have opened up and released all of my bonds. We have to remember that we too are all considered to be Avde Hashem. Not in the slave sense, but in the fact that we all serve somebody greater than ourselves. All of us serve Hashem. We serve God. And it's important to remember that our lives, while yes, we are free, we are free we are free to live with a purpose, free to learn, to live and to learn and to grow in service of God, not simply in service of ourselves or our employers, but in service of God. Um, and, and really, I think that speaks to a whole other tension, which would have to be for a whole other podcast, um, which is, on the one hand, um, our sense in our day, as I've mentioned already, that we don't surrender our freedoms, we don't sell our freedoms, and 
you know, even you know, in the face of starvation, um, most of us would not be willing to, to sell our freedoms. And on the other hand, we identify as Jews, as slaves of Hashem. And it's true that in our translations, we try to paper it over and we call ourselves servants of Hashem instead of slaves. But the word in Hebrew is the same word. So this is another topic that will have to be for another time. But thank you very much for the conversation this morning. Thank you very much, Rabbi Dorchiner. This has been a very enlightening discussion. That's all for today. If you have any follow-ups, questions, or notes that you would like to address to Rebbe Turchiner or Rebbe Metzger, please send us an email to info at toronotora.com. If you'd like to hear more, then please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And follow us, Beit Midrash Zichron Do, on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode on a new Parsha. Thank you and goodbye.